welcome to Word Online. Hello and welcome to series seven and episode three, where we're going to discuss the transfiguration of Jesus. And we're going to use the account in Matthew's gospel as our main text, although we'll refer to the accounts given in Mark and Luke as well. The account in Matthew's gospel appears in Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 to 13. We're now well on our way in series seven. Series six saw the third tour of Galilee that Jesus made with his disciples, having sent them out to preach in the early part of that tour and then traveling together with them in the latter part of that tour. We saw events reach somewhat of a climax in Galilee with tremendous support for him, but also opposition rising from both the political establishment, King Herod Antipas, potentially standing against him at some point in the future, and also from the religious establishment, the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem, and their agents, particularly the Pharisees, who challenged Jesus frequently. Now in series seven, we've followed a journey that Jesus has taken. We noticed at the end of series six that in the rather complex circumstances of Galilee, Jesus decided to spend some time outside that particular province. First of all, he went to Phoenicia, where he met a Canaanite woman whose daughter he healed miraculously. And then he went over to the Decapolis area, another Gentile region, over to the east of Galilee. And there he fed 4,000 and performed other miracles. So it's interesting at the end of series six, Jesus is spending time outside Galilee. And this is the third situation in which we see Jesus outside Galilee. He's been to Phoenicia, he's been to the Decapolis, and now he goes northeast to the territory of Herod Philip, the brother of Herod Antipas, but a different jurisdiction in a different territory. And he's been through Bethsaida, and now he's been also to uh, one of their main cities, Caesarea Philippi. He's managed to avoid crowds and achieved some privacy with his disciples. And in the last two episodes, he's been teaching them very significant things. And these are recorded in Matthew chapter 16 in the preceding passage, just before the one we're looking at now. We have the question that Jesus asks his, his disciples, you know, who do, who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And then Peter confesses that he is the Messiah, the son of the living God. And then Jesus teaches Peter and others about the foundational principles of the church. And then he teaches them about discipleship and the cost of discipleship. And particularly, he emphasizes the fact that he is going to suffer and die, go to Jerusalem and be raised again from the dead. So we have the disciples taken away from public ministry and public life. They're now in private, uh, a long way away from Galilee, and they've managed to get away from the crowds and become relatively anonymous in the area of Caesarea Philippi. And there's been a lot of teaching going on. And it's in this particular episode today that we'll see the decisive change of direction of Jesus' ministry and we'll find that he's now heading for Jerusalem. He's not going to spend time back in Galilee again. 
His three tours are over, his many months of ministry are now finished, and he is moving on to the next phase of his ministry. So he's at Caesarea Philippi as this particular episode starts, and nearby are quite a few hills and mountains. This is the area which we would describe as southern Lebanon, northern Israel, and the Golan Heights in modern geography and uh, the southern westernmost parts of Syria. And it's quite a mountainous area uh, in that situation, which is very significant because Jesus now is going to go up one of those mountains with three of his disciples. But let's follow the story. Let's go to Matthew 17 and let's read the first 13 verses. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you've seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The disciples asked them, Why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they did not recognise him. But they've done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. Well, this is truly a dramatic moment. This very high mountain is almost certainly a mountain that is quite near Caesarea Philippi, just a little bit further north, maybe 10 or so kilometers or 15 kilometers away, is a very high mountain called Mount Hermon, 2,800 meters high. And in the context of the nation of Israel, this is a very, very high mountain indeed, much higher than any of the hills in Galilee. So Mount Hermon is the highest mountain in that area, and it would have been a substantial walk for Jesus to go with his inner circle uh, disciples up this mountain. But it's a suitable location for this remarkable experience. He takes with him Peter, James and John. This is the inner circle within the 12. Although Peter is the leader, 
Peter and James and John are the inner circle. They're mentioned a number of times in the Gospels as having privileged access to Jesus or being selected to spend time with him. For example, in an episode we've already covered when Jairus's daughter is healed, only Peter, James and John are allowed in the room when Jesus heals this girl. And another example from later on in Jesus's life is the time he spent in prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, just before his betrayal. And he invited Peter, James and John to go with him, separate from the others, and to stay awake with him during that incredibly difficult time. So Peter, James and John represent the inner circle. Verse 2, there he was transfigured before them. What does this word transfigured means it means to be transformed to take on a different appearance you're the same person but you have a different appearance an appearance of light and an appearance of glory and an appearance of power it's very hard to put exact words to describe what this might be if we haven't had this experience but something similar is described in a number of parts of the bible And particularly in the book of Revelation, chapter one, uh, John, the very same John who's here at the Mount of Transfiguration, has an experience and a revelation of the person of Jesus in Revelation one, verses 12 to 18. And if I just read verses 14 to 16, you'll get some feeling of what this actually meant. He was speaking of Jesus when he said the hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were like blazing fire, his feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. Now you get a very clear impression here of extraordinary brightness in the appearance of Jesus in this vision. And that's very similar to what we see described here in Matthew 17. Now in verse 3, Moses and Elijah appear with Jesus. What's the significance of Moses and Elijah? They probably are representatives of the prophetic ministry and the prophetic tradition of the Old Testament. They are outstanding prophets. And Moses, for example, who led the people out of Egypt, was described as having such a relationship with God that in Exodus 33 and verse 11, it says, the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Direct intimacy with God. And In Deuteronomy 18, verse 18, he predicts that God says, I'll raise up for them a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites, and I'll put my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything I command him. And it is this particular prophet who then becomes described in the New Testament as the prophet, the supreme prophet, who the Israelites were expecting. So for example, in John 7 verse 40, when some people in Jerusalem heard Jesus speaking, 
some of the people said, surely this man is the prophet. Now that's a reference back to a prophet in the order and of the caliber of Moses. So he was a truly great prophet, as indeed was Elijah, well known for his mighty acts and his astonishing revelation. We'll say a little bit more about Elijah a little bit later on. What were they discussing? Well, here we have the benefit of the different accounts. And one of the beauties of studying the Gospels in the way we've chosen to do is that we're always cross-referencing different accounts of the same events, believing that God has given us all these accounts to help us understand the events and that each writer will give us something distinctive. Very good example appears here, where in Luke's account, in Luke 9, verses 30 and 31, Luke is very clear about what they're talking about. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. It's a very, very interesting expression. The word departure meaning his death and his resurrection in a sense, his departure from this world. And interestingly enough, he was about to bring it to fulfillment in Jerusalem. In other words, Jesus was going to initiate a series of events that would lead to his death and his resurrection and his departure. And so it becomes clear from this point that Jesus must shortly travel south where he is at that time on Mount Hermon or somewhere near there, was about 180 kilometres north of Jerusalem. So quite a long way to travel. And as they were talking and Peter, James and John were listening, they decided that they wanted to honour the presence of Moses and Elijah, Peter, James and John were completely out of their depth. This event happened to them completely unexpectedly and they hadn't really any idea what was going on or what the significance of it was. But they offered to make shelters. Now, what are these shelters and what's their significance? Well, the tradition of the Jews was that in the Feast of Tabernacles, one of their main religious festivals, the people would live for a time, a few days during the feast, outside their homes, or if they travelled to Jerusalem, outside any hostel or any place they were staying, in tents or shelters made of branches and leaves and wood that they could gather. And these shelters symbolised the fact that they had been in the wilderness in the period of Moses and the wandering years between being in Egypt and getting into the Promised Land. Also, interestingly enough, it was anticipated by the prophet Zechariah that in the age of the Messiah, the Messianic age, the Feast of Tabernacles would be resumed. And in uh, Zechariah 14, verse 16, the survivors from all the nations that have attacked Jerusalem will go up year by year to worship the Lord Almighty to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. And so if they're celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles, they'll have these shelters. So these shelters had a kind of spiritual significance 
And this was the first thought that came to the mind of Peter and others. They were to be a sign of respect and a sign of recognition that God was at work. In verse 5, we have another surprise. We hear the voice of God the Father audibly. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. This is very remarkable. The voice of God the Father is heard audibly three times in the Gospels. The first time is at Jesus' baptism. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. A similar statement to the one that we have here. Matthew 3 verse 7. Then later on, during the final days of Jesus' life, as recorded in John 12 verse 28, speaking of God's name, God the Father says, I've glorified my name and will glorify it again. That is through the death and resurrection of Jesus. So on three occasions, the audible voice of God the Father is heard in order to equip and challenge and encourage the people who were hearing that voice. And the significance of the voice on this occasion is particularly in the expression, listen to him. Jesus was trying at, at this point in his ministry to tell them very important things. We've seen this in the last couple of episodes. He's been talking about the foundations of the church. He's been talking about his death and suffering and resurrection. He's been talking about the cost of discipleship. He's been talking about the possibility of going to Jerusalem. So the voice of God the Father is speaking to Peter, James and John saying, listen carefully to what my son is saying as his ministry changes and he is preparing them for the future. Then comes a discussion about Elijah, verse 10 onwards. The disciples asked him, why then did the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has come already and they did not recognize him but have done to him everything they wished in the same way the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. The reference here is not only obviously to John the Baptist, but to the prophecy of the book of Malachi concerning God's messengers and Elijah. Now, Elijah has appeared in person uh, on this particular occasion, and this provokes some discussion and thought amongst the disciples. And as I've mentioned on several occasions in different episodes, as it's appropriate to mention just for context and for explanation, what the Jews had in mind, which Peter, James and John would have had in mind at this point, is the prophecies in Malachi. Malachi 3 verse 1 and Malachi 4 verse 5, which one speaks about a messenger coming before the Lord comes in power, and the second one speaks specifically about the prophet Elijah coming before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And the first messenger in the spirit and power of Elijah is John the Baptist, who was executed. And then 
another Elijah type figure is going to come at Jesus second coming. But the first Elijah type figure, John the Baptist, was executed. Now, all of this is an, a lot to take in for the three disciples, Peter, James and John. How are they going to manage to interpret this incredible experience? How would we manage to process it? It really took them by surprise. They'd had a remarkable experience talking to Jesus about the church and Jesus' identity. They'd, they'd heard about him going to die on the cross and suffer and be raised again from the dead on the third day. They'd got all that to think about. They got the feeling that they were going to be leaving Galilee permanently and traveling to Jerusalem. And now suddenly they get on the mountain and without any warning, Moses and Elijah appear. Jesus is transformed into a kind of glorious person, reflecting much more of the heavenly glory which he'd laid aside when he came to earth as a man. Then they hear the voice of God the Father speaking to them speaking about the, his son and encouraging them to listen carefully to the things he was saying. They had an awful lot to process. And Mark gives us an insight into their conversation as they were coming down the mountain. It takes quite a long time to go up and down such a high mountain. Plenty of time for conversation. Mark's account of this event occurs in Mark chapter 9. And verses 9 and 10 give us an insight into the conversation that was going on. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. They were sworn to secrecy and they were pondering what this resurrection was going to be. You see, Jews at the time believed in the resurrection of righteous people, that they would physically rise again from the dead. It was the general belief, not everybody, but it was the general belief of religious Jews at the time. But they believed that would all happen at the very end of the age, long, long, long time in the future. But what Jesus was saying, that he was going to die and rise again three days later, it was going to be an immediate event. A future event was going to be brought back into the present. And that puzzled them. They were struggling to understand everything that was going on. So here we are. We've had a look at this amazing event called the Transfiguration. We've tried to get into the shoes of the disciples as they were working out what on earth was going on and what the significance of the events was. I want to end with just a few final reflections on this magnificent event. First of all, it helps us to see Jesus, the Son of God, from an eternal perspective. You see, we tend to view him if we're studying the Gospels Purely in human terms, we see him as a human being from his conception to his resurrection and his ascension. Everything about him we can describe in human terms because he is utterly human. His humanity is like your humanity and mine. 
But what we can easily forget is that Jesus as the Son of God existed in eternity before he became a man. Jesus's identity did not start with his humanity. It started with his deity. He's existed from eternity with his Father and the Holy Spirit, our God three in one and one in three, before all of creation and existing eternally. His humanity was a subsequent event. He adopted human nature. He became a human being at the incarnation. And this event suddenly helps us to see, ah, yes, he really is the divine son of God. He's not just an ordinary human and he can connect with that divine and eternal world very easily. But this discussion that Jesus has with Moses and Elijah suggests that he is preparing now for a total change of his ministry. He's leaving Galilee, he's leaving his home area, and he is going to Jerusalem. And he's not going to be returning. He's not going to be doing a fourth tour of Galilee. He's not going to be doing another tour of preaching. No, Jerusalem is going to be the place where the final events of Jesus' ministry are going to be played out. And he's instructing Peter, James and John so that they can help the rest of the disciples get used to the change of environment. They're going to go out of their home district. They're not going to be anywhere near their homes or their families. They're going to be experiencing more hostility, more complexity. They're going to be facing suffering and difficulty. And they're ultimately going to be in the environment of Jesus's death and then ultimately his resurrection. They're being prepared for this great change. God has a wonderful way of preparing us for change, giving us an indication of the things that are going to happen in the future. Maybe that happens to you from time to time. Now, two out of the three people who experienced Jesus' transfiguration actually wrote about it. John and Peter, in very different ways, they reflected on the experience that they'd had here and indeed elsewhere. John's reflection comes in John chapter 1, a passage we've studied already. But in John 1 verse 14, he says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And when he says we've seen his glory, he means it in a very literal sense. He, with his own eyes, saw the full glory of Jesus in his deity on the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, likewise, in 2 Peter 1, verses 16 to 18, speaks very specifically about the Transfiguration. He writes many years later, but he remembers the event we've just looked at very vividly. And this is his interpretation. For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Interesting expression, eyewitnesses of his majesty. That's what he's describing as the transfiguration. He received honour and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him, from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love, with him 
I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. Many years later, Peter remembers vividly the transfiguration. The transfiguration equipped Jesus to engage with the next and difficult phase of his ministry. He heard the voice of his father. He had discussions with Moses and Elijah who appeared miraculously. But more particularly, it equipped Peter, James and John who needed to be the backbone of the group of 12 disciples as they headed south for a showdown in Jerusalem. And we'll be following that story very thoroughly as we continue our studies. Thanks for listening. You have been listening to Martin Charlesworth for Word Online. To find out more, visit wordonline.org.